Welcome to Away From The Keyboard. We give you a glimpse into the lives, interests, and tech behind today's technologists. Please join our hosts, Cecil Phillip and Richie Rump, as we get away from the keyboard. Welcome to Away From The Keyboard, where technologists tell their stories of how they started, how they grew, how they learned, and how they unwind. My name is Richie Rump, and joining me is my co-host, Cecil Phillip. What's going on, Cecil? Not much, Richie. How are you doing? Pretty good, man. I just uh, recently got back from Houston, where I presented at SQL Saturday Houston. And, you know, normally the day before, I would go through my presentation one more time. So while I was in the hotel room, I popped open my notebook to go over it. And guess what? What happened? It wouldn't start. Oh, man. So what did I do? I just went back into my bag, pulled out another computer, popped it open, and started presenting from that. You travel with two computers. This time I traveled with three. Are you kidding me? No, I, I do. I do. I've got uh, two Dell XPSs and I brought my Surface with me. Dude, you are a trooper, man. I got to say. I, I am. But out of all that, I wrote a blog post on brentozar.com. Just kind of chronicled not only my near disaster, but also the four things that presenters should do to prepare for the worst. Kind of like the, the hardware slash demo failure. If you want to go read that, that's on brentozar.com slash blog. You know, that's actually a pretty good piece of advice. I mean, I never travel with more than one laptop. You know, one, because I just think it's just too much weight for me to lug around. Looking at your situation now, in that case, I definitely wish I'd have a backup, you know. So now I got to think about buying another laptop. Yeah, you just never know what's going to happen. And as a presenter, you want to be prepared for the unknown. You don't know when your computer's going to die or your demo's going to fail or any of that. You want contingencies. You want backups. My post just goes into, hey, what happens if the unthinkable does? So how are you going to handle that? And it's just about, like Scar said, be prepared. So what you been up to? So this weekend, me and my family actually took a trip over to, to Naples. So we haven't been over to Naples in a while. And you know I figured it'd be a good time for us to just go and get some quality time. And for all of our listeners that don't know where Naples is exactly, it's on the west coast of Florida. So if you imagine where Fort Lauderdale is, head due west until you hit water. Now we're in Naples. So we actually spent a fair amount of time you know, on the beach over there. The weather was pretty nice. It was nice and warm. The water was very calm. But one thing that kind of caught me was a lot of people seem to go to the beach later at night because they wanted to go catch the sunset. I had no idea watching the sunset was such a big deal. I swear to you, like the sun went down a little bit after 8, around 8.30. The minute it, you know, went just past the horizon, you know, people were clapping and everybody's cheering and bottles are popping. And, you know, everybody's, you know, it's like a little party on the beach, man. Um, wow. It, it, it's like you went to Naples and... Key West broke out. Yes, it was like I never left South Florida, right? But it was a lot of fun, I got to say. You know, I was definitely impressed by the different crowds of people that were there. You know, there were a lot of Peruvians there, a lot of Latinos, you know, and, and everybody was just out having a good time. It was, it was definitely a good weekend. So if you guys ever want to just go and relax and just kind of just enjoy some peace of mind time, Naples is definitely a good place to go, you know, do that. Yeah, one of the things I really love about the West Coast of Florida is the white sand. It's amazing. 
the sand was gorgeous and the water too was very calm most of the weekend so for for any any of you guys that have small children you'd definitely appreciate you know that aspect of it so who are we talking to today so today we're talking to mr aaron stannard aaron is the founder and ceo of petterbridge and the co-founder of the Aka.net open source project. Prior to Petterbridge, Aaron founded Marked Up Analytics, a real-time in-app marketing and analytics service used by a thousand plus developers. Prior to that, he worked at Microsoft as a startup developer evangelist. This episode is recorded on April 19th, 2016, and now our conversation with Aaron Stannard. And now, away from the keyboard's feature conversation. So Aaron, I want to step back a little bit more in your past, right? It kind of it kind of feels for me that you're a pretty passionate guy, right? And, you know, oh I, yeah. I, I, I kind of get that from again, just you know, from social media, so to speak. So where did your passion for technology really start? Oh man, uh, before I was born, probably my my dad uh, came to the United States as an immigrant from the UK. Uh, he grew up in a government housing project outside of London in the uh, early fifties. And he basically scraped and scrimped his way to get uh, into essentially a, a graduate school here in uh, in Los Angeles, where I live now. He's um he was a theoretical chemist, is what he did, and he um got into computing in the mid to late seventies while he was doing some postdoctoral work, and ended up sticking around in that field just long enough to get his green card. And then he bounced and started a, in the very early 1980s, like 81, I think, maybe 82, started his first uh, software company, which did desktop software, printer drivers, and other stuff for the Apple II back in the day. And so I was born in 1985. And so by the time I, you know, by the time I came around, he'd been programming for six, seven years. And he's continued to do that since. Um, So he's been... Yeah, he's running. He's got a software company that he runs uh, called SmartDraw. Uh, they do diagramming software, and they've been in business for I guess twenty three years now, twenty two, twenty three since ne- about nineteen ninety four. Was I think they sold their first copy, um, and so I, I picked up a lot of my passion for technology from him, just because I was kind of inundated with it growing up. Um, I learned how to program when I was learning my multiplication tables at the age of like six or seven. Uh, my dad had me write a basic program that would help me figure out how to, you know, do my uh, times tables up to about a hundred. So I remember doing that, and then uh, I think when I was uh, my birthday present when I was ten years old was my first domain name. So this wow. is back in 1995. That was super cool. So I started. He started getting me into web development, um, and I remember one of my absolute favorite gifts, like for Christmas or for my birthday in a given year. Were those um? You remember those Quick Start series books that they would hand out on like CSS and yep. HTML, and JavaScript? Oh man! Every time I got one of those, I would just tear through it. Nice. So I really started at a pretty young age. Uh, paid for my car by designing ASP Classic websites for people in middle school and high school too. Um, so I learned how to do some stuff you know, with SQL Server and everything pretty early. And then uh, I really got. I really got passionate about uh, some of the cutting edge stuff that was starting to happen in our industry in the you know early 2000s, late 90s. In particular, it was machine learning was something that I really wanted to wanted to learn in college, and I ended up going to. Um, so I'm from Southern California originally, and I applied to a whole bunch of schools. You know, USC was the real popular one uh, here in SoCal. 
But I had a football coach that uh, taught that played football at Vanderbilt, and I decided on a whim because they were on the common application, so it was like no, you know, no extra work for me just to go and apply there. And I ended up getting in. I went to their engineering school, and they had a professor there who was one of the things that Vanderbilt did when they were a little bit less competitive in terms of the types of students they attracted. This is like ten years ago is they had this like demo day for their engineering school, basically, where all the students who had gotten accepted but hadn't committed to the school yet, they'd bring them in for a weekend, and you could meet a bunch of the professors and see the stuff they're working on. Well, they had this one NASA research fellow who built a robot that could collect all the beer cans in a room, no matter where you put them, and put them all in the recycle bin. (laughs) And that took a pretty amazing amount of math. And then there was also all the hardware involved. And this is in like 2004 that that this was up and running. And I thought, okay, that is super cool. I've got to give that a shot. Um, I ended up switching concentrations from – uh, doing like sort of machine learning stuff to doing distributed systems, which is kind of what I do now. But either way, uh, that's I've sort of been always very much interested in growing with my field and getting a chance to uh, try new things and keep working on it. And for me, it's kind of like it's not just engineering for the sake of um, of building stuff. It's also kind of like uh, the my primary form of like creative self-expression too, you know? Yeah, it sounds like you, you got a really early start in not even just programming alone, but it sounds like from creativity to entrepreneurship to even like some getting some independence, right? And, you know, paying for your own car. That's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. My you know, my dad was pretty successful, um, not when I was originally born, but like by the time I was around 10 or 11 years old, his uh, smart draw business has started to do pretty well. Um and so I had a lot of, you know, that afforded me a lot of opportunities. But really, the biggest sort of like head start I got was I just, I had a, you know, I had, I had a sort of family members. It wasn't just my dad too. I had a couple of uncles who were very entrepreneurial and technical as well. Um, so I basically had a pretty good sort of group of uh, older guys I could sort of look up to who had been there, done that, and I learned a ton through osmosis, you know. And uh, was able to sort of use that to get a head start on, yeah, being independent. I didn't even realize that until you said that just now. Uh, but yeah, getting a head start and sort of being able to be independent and the entrepreneurial stuff. Yeah, ever since really early age, uh, I've been that way. My first business was, I think I was maybe nine or 10. I uh, you created a very old school AOL, like three or 4.0 website for selling baseball cards I had collected. Um so I was sort of wheeling and dealing those back in the day. Um, yeah, it was uh, it was it was totally bizarre. I remember, uh, yeah, getting a check for a Hideo Nomo rookie card. No, actually, no, I bought that one doing that. I'm trying to remember what I sold. Yeah, can't remember anymore. But um, yeah, well, they're all worthless now anyway. So <laughs> yeah, thanks, guys. <laughs> and I've got like I've got like three boxes of those Wizards of the Coast Star Wars card games, which completely got destroyed when they released all the prequels. You know, oh. it's just like, dude, Jar Jar Binks strikes again. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I just bought uh, I just bought HBO's. Uh, what's the What's the subscription you can get if you ha- don't have HBO Go? Uh, HBO goes if you have cable. This is I guess HBO Now is what it's called. Oh, okay. Um, so it's like fifteen bucks a month. And I cut the cable uh, three years ago when I when I was starting marked up. I had to I had to slash a ton of expenses in my cable package that I 
watched maybe twice a month was the thing I decided to axe. And I've totally missed out on a whole bunch of good TV since then. So I just started binge watching a bunch of Silicon Valley. And I got to tell you, like having personally gone through a lot of that stuff, it is so frighteningly real. A lot of it, like it's not like it's, it's a little bit of exaggeration, but not off by that much. Well, now that you bring that up, why don't we, why don't we talk about marked up a little bit? So sure. Why don't you tell us how did you, well, why did you start the company and, and, you know, how did you, you know, how did you start, you know, what did you learn from it through the process? Sure. So the very first uh, software company I ever attempted was, I worked for, for my dad at uh, SmartDraw for a couple years out of college. I mean, I graduated in 2008, so you can imagine what the, uh, you know, what the, what the markets looked like around that time, right? It was pretty, pretty brutal. Um, for a, for someone with no job experience at all. So I, I worked for, I worked for a couple of years doing that and I left because I wanted to build a social media analytics company. Uh, I was really into big data and analytics and I hadn't been developing a software for a couple of years. So I decided this was a good way for me to get back into it. And it turned out I was horribly in over my head. That startup lasted like a grand total of six weeks. But the upshot of that was Microsoft recruited me. Uh, as a result of some of the stuff I wrote on my blog, actually, of course, about that. I wrote a blog post about why startups don't adopt .NET, and that got to the top of Hacker News. This is like 4th of July weekend, 2010, and uh, the guy who would end up being my, um, I guess he'd be my peer on my team, saw it. I sent it upstairs to his, um, you know, to our guy who would become our manager, and I took a job at Microsoft, and they relocated me to L.A., and my job at Microsoft was to be a startup developer evangelist. Uh, I was sort of trying to get early stage technology companies in LA in particular to adopt things like Windows Phone, Windows Azure, and then eventually Windows 8. So the opportunity for Marked Up really came up uh, after I'd been working that job for a couple years and Windows 8 was getting ready to be launched. And I had a whole bunch of information about what Microsoft's strategy was how who was going to be involved and you know bringing Windows 8 out of the gate how big we thought the opportunity was and i also knew a ton of investors here in LA as a result of my job uh where you're trying to network with them and get in with startups so the combination of those two things plus the fact that i'd actually really beefed up my technical chops my 2 years at microsoft uh made me think that this was the right time and right place to go ahead and build an analytics product for trying to go and service all those apps that were going to be going out in the Windows Store platform. You know, I thought that uh, I basically bought into all of the um, hype about this being the biggest developer opportunity ever. It sounds silly now, given how it panned out, but uh, I sort of bought into all of that, and so did my investors. And so I went through an accelerator here in Southern California called Mucker Lab. Uh, they're one of the highest-rated accelerators in the United States. Um, a lot of... Uh, and a lot of my, you know, peers that I still stay in touch with all the time all went through there with me. Um, and I decided to go ahead and use that as sort of the place to begin. We ended up raising, um, initially it was like about $600,000 or so, uh, from a combination of friends and family, but it was overwhelmingly professional investors though was sort of where we raised the bulk of that money from. And we went to work trying to go and build marked up as a platform uh we very quickly landed a couple of massive uh windows store applications like stumble upon cut the rope and others and so things were looking really good early on there but where things 
where things sort of got a little shaky along the way was by so we launched marked up august 2012 well actually that's when i left microsoft to go and start it uh we didn't really officially launch the platform until maybe beginning of of october and then windows 8 officially came out about a month after we launched so like kind of closer to halloween was sort of when windows 8 officially launched in 2012 and things were looking good early on uh we got some interest from some OEMs uh so you know people who actually like dell and hp and those sorts of companies to help us uh, work with their customers and doing partner analytics. So we had all the makings of looking like there was growth and traction there. Where the bottom started to fall out from stuff was by the time summer of 2013 rolled around, we were getting some pretty troubling reports back from our own customers on how little money they were actually making in the Windows Store. The numbers were like two orders of magnitude lower than what Microsoft expected. So if they expected $100,000 to come in, they got ten. That's how bad it was. Um, and I guess that's more than two orders of magnitude, but pretty indicative of sort of what it was like. Um, I'm not going to say the exact quote, but one of the one of the partners uh, quoted to me just how, you know, they had a team of five people assigned to working on the Windows Store. And they told me how much revenue they had made in a year. And it was on the order of like single digits, thousands of dollars. Like that's how bad people were doing on the Windows Store. And they had five full-time people working on that. So it was just a total disaster from a market standpoint. So what we decided to do was try to pivot a little bit because uh, we still had cash in the bank. And I was able to raise some more money while we were uh, plowing away there. And we started pivoting from doing just analytics because we realized that was sort of a, a dead end. No one was making enough money to be willing to pay for it. And we decided to offer uh, marketing automation, a means of giving the developers a chance to make more money by using our, the analytic data to send really highly targeted messages and offers and that sort of thing uh, inside the app. So it was all like in-app uh, communication. And we decided to try that out on Windows Desktop, actually, instead of doing the Windows Store. We realized the Windows Store was just not going to work for us. So we decided to go ahead and give that a try on Windows Desktop. Uh, we got some deals going there, got some a little bit of revenue coming in. But that was another market that's in trouble, the traditional like Win32 desktop app market. Essentially, all the consumer-facing applications on there, you know, and, and co companies like Download.com and everything else have done everything to try to squeeze the littlest bit of revenue out of that ecosystem. And in the process, totally destroyed the trust end users had for Windows. So, you know, you remember the uh, Superfish scandal with Lenovo back in the day? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. So there was that. There was a BitTorrent got accused of including a Bitcoin miner on people's computers. And there was all sorts of other nasty stuff. And those are all just over the past couple of years. And, you know, stuff like that just sort of poisoned the well for people who are trying to actually sell legit Windows apps on, the win on Windows Desktop, too. So effectively, we pivoted from one market that failed to grow to a big market that was shrinking rapidly. So two, two sort of uh, two, I guess, darts down blind alleys, so to speak. So at, at the end of it all, after about two not quite two and a half years, maybe two and a quarter years. We basically just ran out of money, and I shut the company down around uh, Thanksgiving 2014. Yeah. So, you know, initially, uh, the way I sort of the way I sort of reacted to that um, was basically that 
I, I was physically too exhausted to process anything. The weeks leading up to the company shutting down, I've been putting in 100 hours a week pretty consistently for about three or four months. So I was physically just shot <laughs> by the end of that. I, I didn't even have the bandwidth to process anything. And for a little while, I would say I felt uh, guilty, like I could have done more and I could have uh, could have done uh, things differently to try to save the company. You know, everyone has 2020 vision with hindsight, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, was it how big is your team? Was it just you, or are we talking a team of two it or three fluctuated. people? Fluctuated. We had a team uh, at one point. We had a team of five or six. I shrunk it down when things got lean. When like the, it was clear the Windows Store wasn't going to work out, I shrunk things down to a team of three, and we stayed with that for about a year and change. A uh, team of three people. Um, the other two guys who worked at the company, awesome engineers. I still stay in touch with them, uh, and they are they're both family guys. So and they're paying mortgages and stuff like that. So I definitely felt a lot of uh, responsibility <laughs> as a, I was a young twenty something when I was running all this. Uh, I turned thirty in October, so I've still still got a lot of uh, life left to live on the odometer here. <laughs> but um, I yeah, I, I definitely felt like I had a lot of a uh, lot of responsibility on my shoulders. But ultimately, you know, it, with getting a little bit of distance between myself and marked up. I'm really grateful for everything that happened and knowing what I knew at the time I knew it, I probably wouldn't have done very much differently. It was not a couple of things I could have pointed to at the time where I was like, yeah, I knew this was a bad idea. It was all a lot of what you have to do in business is you have to make the best decision possible with incomplete data. And inherently there's risk with that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Can't avoid it. And you can't beat yourself up if you make a wrong decision. And by the same token, you can't also go and shout your, your triumphs on the top of a mountain either, because there's some element of, uh, there's some, there's some element of an educated guessing that goes in there, which means there is a guess, right? One of the things I really like about your story is through your, your failures or through the, you know, the failures of the Windows Store, I guess we could say. <laughs> it sounds like you learned a lot of good lessons, though. You know, it sounds like you learned a lot of good lessons and you came out stronger from it. Oh, yeah. Uh, I would say my confidence as an entrepreneur, ironically, went up as a result of that. Yeah. Uh, because it's tough to explain. Um, I got, I've, I've been asked some questions by a couple of people who are thinking about starting a company, you know, within my peer group about some of the stuff that, cause I was pretty open, like on Facebook and on Twitter. I wrote a blog post about us shutting down marked up and everything. Like I'm pretty, wear my heart on my sleeve. And that includes admitting I made a mistake or I, you know, didn't pull something off that I thought I would sometimes. And so, so a lot of people came, oh, you know, came and asked me about some of that stuff, uh, with particularly around shutting marked up down. And I said to him, listen, if you can go through an experience like that and realize that's not going to kill you, what can in, right. in reality here, you know, sitting in, you know, somewhere in suburban, you know, United States, there's very little physical danger we actually deal with on a day to day basis, like things that can actually do us harm. Everything else is all just a story in our head about what is and isn't dangerous. And once you realize that and you've gone through something that on the surface seems like your worst nightmare, I got to tell you, I dreaded the thought of having to write that blog post about shutting marked up down from the day I started it. Um, it was, it was one of those things I perpetually had anxiety about. And Having been through that, it's like, you know what? If I can go ahead and make it that far, knowing as little as I did then, and with all the knowledge that I have now, plus like the connections and the resources and everything else that I sort of got, you know, out of as a result of, of working on that problem for, I guess, two and a half years, 
Yeah, like it's it's all it is is just experience and like kind of I describe it like a combination of a PhD in engineering with an MBA at the same time, sort of <laughs> squeezed down into two and a half years. So that sounds like quality education to me. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, the biggest the biggest things I, I really learned uh, were probably all mostly about how I work and what works best for me. Like I, I realized one of the things I absolutely have to have in any environment I work in, um, regardless of how talented the other people are around me, is we have to have a culture of explicit communication, um, which basically means like no one makes assumptions about what other people do or don't know or what they are or did or did not do, you know? Yeah. Um, and I realized because one of the things that made my team of three work so well we were all working remotely most of the time. One of my one of my guys was here in L.A., but he was in uh, the Valley, and I'm in Santa Monica, so that may as well be like Egypt, you know, <laughs> um, given the traffic situation here. And then uh, another was in uh, Houston, and we all communicated over Slack – or not Slack, a hip chat primarily. Um, and we were very effective as a team because our communication was all explicit. It was a lot of it was asynchronous, the things like GitHub and everything else. But we were very explicit in telling each other what we're working on, what we did, what we didn't do. And that made us very fast and able to turn around actually a lot very quickly. Um, and I realized that was something that I didn't have in other environments that I'd worked before that had really made a big difference on not just my productivity, but how like happy I felt on the job. You know? right. So it's funny you kind of mentioned the um, the asynchronous work for a little bit. So this is other guy I follow on Twitter. His name is Peter Higgins. He's the um, the creator of Zero MQ. Oh, and okay. He's he's very much he has a he has a lot of interesting ideas and thoughts around workflow and you know he's very opinionated about certain things to say the least. But one of the things he, he definitely promotes is meetings are bad and. You know, you're going to create the type of software based on the type of organization you are. He's like, the best thing that he did was create Zero MQ in a community in a way that it's very open. It's very easy to, to get involved in. It's very easy for us to share ideas and work with each other. Um, and there's, there's no meetings. There's no, you know, there's none of that blocking again, workflow again, but everything is very much like just, just go, right? And we'll, we'll see what happens. And I mean, I think it's been fairly successful. He has a lot of people using it, right? Like, so did you feel that workflow was, was beneficial to you? Like, what were your thoughts on that? You know, I basically have the opinion that, yeah, in general, meetings should be rationed, would be the expression I would use, uh, that they are, they are necessary. Sometimes it's worth stopping in order to make sure that everyone's on the same page. Yeah. Um, so Akka.net has an extremely asynchronous workflow. Part of the reason is, is our team is spread out over, you know, three or four continents. Um, so we can't, there's not always a time on the calendar when everybody can get together. So the way we tend to communicate is through chat. We use Gitter very heavily. Um, yeah. And that works really well for us. And Akka.net's a very complex technology. In order for us to, well, not complex. It's more like it just has a, it does a lot. It's a big project. And in order for us to be able to work uh, and be able to deliver that, we have to have a workflow where people can independently go and run a build of the software and see if all the tests pass and everything else. And they need to be able to go and look at all the issues that other people have found and be able to go and see the records for what were the different things Aaron did when I was asleep and what were the things Roger did when I was asleep, you know, that sort of stuff. And I found that that worked really well. 
Uh, and the other thing I would say, you know, hearkening back to Marked Up, was you know, one of the things I'm sensitive about. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a single guy. I don't really have a lot of responsibilities. But the other two people who work with me had three or, you know, three kids each. Um, they've got stuff, you know, in their day-to-day life. And one of the things I'm really sensitive about as an employer, and I'm planning on hiring more people at Petterbridge this year, is I want to make sure that uh, people who work with me don't miss out on things that are important to them, like kids' soccer games and all that sort of stuff because of work commitments. Well, if you have an asynchronous workflow that allows, you know, a guy like my my ops guy at Marked Up was able to go and he would check out during the afternoon sometimes, go and do a bunch of stuff with his family. Then he would get online at 10 o'clock at night and work until 2 in the morning after his kids were asleep. That just worked for him, right? Right. And he had choice in the matter. And he could work when, when he needed. If he needed to make up time on a weekend, it was fine. But he was very good at ex- being explicit about everything he's got going on, what he needs from us and what he needs it by. Right. And that just – and it's like when you go and volunteer all that information and you put it forth in some sort of persistent chat or a GitHub issue or something like that, uh, works great. And that flow gives that flow gives people the flexibility they need to go out and have a career that not only makes them happy but also gets to enjoy the other things apart from you know being behind the keyboard, so to speak. Right. And I believe today, you know, given just the the way that technology is with communication, it's so easy for you to essentially reach out and touch somebody, right? Like we have no lacking of chat apps and communication apps and messaging and, you know, so yeah, it's more so the problem is trying to, trying to consolidate and decide which one we're going to actually pay attention to. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would agree with that. I, I think to have an asynchronous like sort of workflow, one of the big things you really need to have, and I invest heavily in this where I can is automation. So in particular, one of the things I'm really passionate about is continuous integration and build automation. I think that any engineer who's working on a project should be able to go and fire stuff at that build server and get their questions answered automatically about, oh, did this thing work? And we should have all sorts of ranges of tests that go ahead and try out pretty complex things that they can just go and run automatically. So I try to automate things like that. Another thing I'm going to try to automate a little bit more of is using things like chat bots to allow people to do things like pull a diagnostic report off a build server or any other sorts of things. Things that allow, like, I really think in startups, particularly really small companies that are just starting, a lot of people misplace a lot of emphasis early on things like delegation and outsourcing when really you should be investing in things like automation and tools that give every individual on your team the ability to do a lot more faster, you know. Um, without necessarily needing to engage in synchronous communication with someone else. So, yeah, I think it's a matter of picking the right tools, the right processes, and making sure you have the right parts of your business sort of automated from day one. Right. So moving forward from from Marked Up, and you you mentioned obviously Petabridge a little bit, and we've, we've mentioned Aka.net. Mm-hmm. So for, I guess our listeners that don't exactly know what these are, Right, like, why don't you tell us a little bit about how we, how you went from again the lessons learned from from Marked Up to to starting yet another company, and also what I'd, I'd like to call a fairly successful open source project. Okay, yeah, sure. Um, so I had had a little bit of experience with open source uh, dating back from before I joined Microsoft. I uh, decided as a growth activity 
when I was getting back into programming. So I was hardcore engineering up in all the way through college. And then for some reason, I think it was in 2008 when I was graduating, I decided I wanted to do marketing for two years. So I did that and left engineering totally behind. I was rusty after that. Technology had changed a lot in just a short two years. Uh, like in .NET parlance, that was the, like I think .NET 3.5 came out during those two years when I was gone. So we had Link and Lambda expressions and all this stuff, uh, which are you know, huge foundations to how .NET works today. And what I um, what I really sort of decided to do at Marked Up was our culture was built around. We basically had a small number of fairly elite engineers, and who all had some open source experience uh, prior to joining the company. And when we started working on our marketing automation product, it required a couple of fundamental missing parts that the .NET ecosystem simply hadn't delivered. Uh, the first big part was we needed some way of doing stateful programming on the server. So just to put a pin in that real quick, stateful programming on the server means you actually keep when data gets sent into your server via like a web service method or a socket or whatever, you hold on to some of that information in memory in the same piece of basically same piece of memory, same machine as where your functional application code lives, not in a database or a cache necessarily. That's what a stateful application looks like. And they can do types of things that are simply impossible with stateless applications, which is how the majority of web apps are designed. So a stateless app is something like a, traditional MVC application that goes and fetches data out of a database on every request. Stateful applications do in-memory processing and serve results from there. They're, you know, at least an order of magnitude faster. And what we needed to do is we needed the ability to observe a stream of events for a particular user of one of our customers' apps. And if those stream of events satisfied a bunch of arbitrary conditions our customer could change at any given time, if those conditions were satisfied, we would deliver a message that our customer had specified to that end user. And that might include a call to action like a link or something in there. And that was something we needed to be able to do for hundreds of thousands of users at the exact same time. Because that's how many we had connected to our service in peak hours. Right. So – in order to do that, we needed a model that would allow us to go and take all those little tiny buckets of state for every user and break them up into hundreds of thousands of distinct units. Turns out there's a programming model that was invented in the 70s called the actor model. Uh, that is a very effective way of modeling this type of problem. Essentially, every single actor is its own individual little microprocess. And what it does is it receives messages. It wakes up processes all the messages that are waiting in its little mailbox. And that processing might look like, you know, I don't know, running some function, calling a database, calling another web service method. It doesn't really matter. And then it might send some messages back to some other actors. Then it goes back to sleep, waits for more work. Uh, so that's a really effective technique, and it's very old. Uh, the actor model is only a couple years younger than the relational database. The original white papers for those two ideas are about two years apart from each other. Uh, but the actor model was not implemented anywhere in .NET. In, you know, in the Java ecosystem, there was a very popular framework written in Scala called Akka, A-K-K-A. -A. And this sort of implemented the Erlang-style actor model. Erlang was sort of the real first major implementation of the actor model. Uh, Akka basically implemented Erlang's concepts, but on the JVM. So I went ahead and figured, okay, well, this looks like it would solve our problem. 
Uh, I'll just go ahead and try porting this to .NET. We tried porting our infrastructure to Java, but that turned out to introduce much more awful problems than porting that framework to .NET did, such as we'd have to completely change our entire deployment process, which at this point was pretty pretty heavy duty given the types of traffic we were under. So we weren't, we didn't, and we didn't have the resources to do that. Right. So we got to work porting this framework. Uh, we also had to port a socket server to .NET because one of those didn't exist either. Um, really? That's surprising. Yeah, I was surprised too. I wrote a pretty angry rant about it at some point that uh, ended up making the waves on Reddit or something back in the day. Um, but yeah, that didn't materialize either. So we wrote that. And then it turned out that there was another guy in Sweden working on an actor, an ACA implementation in .NET at the exact same time I was. So I did what any pragmatist who cared about his business's bottom line would do. You stole and I his immediately, code? I immediately compared his benchmark to mine. That's what I did. <laughs> and his benchmark kicked mine's ass by a factor of five. Wow. So I went ahead and ditched my implementation of Akka and .NET and joined forces with him. And I brought my networking layer, my socket server, and everything else with me. And within about six months, we got Akka core, Akka.remote, uh, a little package I wrote for doing Akka monitoring, uh, the socket server, and all four of the different services in our product we needed to deliver that service. I uh, did all that in about six months, got it shipped. Um and we were able to get some customers on board, but it was kind of a little too little too late for our business. And that's sort of where that's sort of where the origins of Akadonet came from. Now, one of the things that helped the project become successful was Roger had developed. That's the the Swedish guy, the other co-founder. Uh, Roger added a very primitive F# Sharp API and went ahead and tweeted it out. And Don Syme, the inventor of F# Sharp, picked it up and started blurting it out to his users. And then all of a sudden, we got this giant surge of F# Sharp people early on, who really were responsible for helping the project get some critical mass. Um, and uh, from there, we started attracting some more cutting edge, like C# Sharp developers, and started working our way up the uh, adoption curve to more and more sort of mature companies. And yeah, now sort of where Aka.net is today, we have power plants, banks, healthcare companies, oil and gas, uh, retailers, um, a lot of you know, a lot of companies in a lot of different markets that all use Aka.net pretty heavily in production. So over the course of about two years or so, we sort of started Aka.net uh, about December 2013. And then I joined forces with Roger a couple months later in February uh, 2014. So yeah, I guess it's been a little bit over uh, yeah, a little bit over two years since it really got going. And it's uh, becoming a, it's a big project now. Uh, we have about eight or nine regular contributors who are there every day working on it. And then we have about 90 total who have ever contributed something. So Aaron, give me the give me the business pitch, right? Tell me as a a CTO or you know lead architect or something like that. What is it about Akka and Akka.net specifically that, you know, what is it about it that's going to make my application or make it easier for me to handle these, um, some of these um, stateful asynchronous um, workflows? 
Sure. So I'll go ahead and give you the pitch, uh, sort of summarized version of a talk I just gave at a QCon in Sao Paulo a couple of weeks ago, which is, it was called, uh, we're all distributed developers now, distributed systems developers now, excuse me. And the basic thesis of that is that the demands on backend developers are increasing at unprecedented rates right now. Our applications are expected to be always on. So there's no downtime, not even planned downtime ever. We have to be able to serve a huge variety of devices. So it's not just desktop apps connected to broadband connections. We have to support mobile phones and little tablets and other sorts of connected devices out in the field potentially. We are, have to collect a lot more data per user now in order to stay competitive with everyone else in the industry. And on top of that, we're expected to deliver functionality that was unheard of before, like real-time notifications and alerts. And in order to manage with all that structural complexity, we have to pick some tools that allow us to scale. And the obvious ways to scale are wrong. So things like you know, doing sharded master replica failover sets with a you know, relational database and that sort of thing. Uh, I, I'll show the slide, but that's not the point right now. Sure. All those sorts of obvious ways of scaling don't work. We need, we need something that actually applies distributed systems theory to this problem. And Akka.net is a very efficient, uh, inexpensive way of being able to teach line developers how to express all of that in a manner that is powerful, fast, and not to mention academically well-validated. So the real pitch behind Akka.net is with all these demands that are being placed on backend developers, Akka.net gives you a framework that helps really curb that complexity and gives you the ability to handle all those demands in a manner that is performant, robust, and flexible. So let's say I, I, I'm starting a new project. right? Mm -hmm. it, it might not necessarily be a distributed type application today. It might be fairly small, but you know, it, it has potential to grow. and has potential to become something you know, a little bit more substantial in the future. Would it make sense for me to start with Akka today? Assuming that, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with it or, you know, I even want to throw it in the project and then grow, you know, like will it grow as my app grows or is it something that I might want to add later when I am starting to see like some of those more heavier um, workloads? Well, Akka.net scales down very well, too. We have WPF and Windows Forms developers use Akka.net and client desktop applications. Okay. The reason being is that the core actor library is actually very good for managing concurrency issues. So... We had a case study uh, that we did for a big uh, financial company, SNL Financial. They're a subsidiary of McGraw-Hill, one of the big Wall Street firms. Right. And uh, what they actually used Akka.net for was they had to have an equivalent of like a Google spreadsheet. They used her displaying, um, I guess it was community banking data. So lots of different little variables about loans going in and out and that sort of stuff. And it had to be synchronized across lots of different clients. Yeah. Well, they used Akka.net in process and each individual web server to manage all the concurrent data going into SignalR for that. And that's an example of people being able to use Akka.net in a context that's not distributed, but still a really effective way of solving their problem. So I think for all intents and purposes, if you have something that looks like it's going to have you know, concurrency or asynchronous sort of behavior built into it. And you want, uh, you potentially want the ability to go and maybe break that out over different services in the future. Starting with Akka.net originally and using all of its in memory and sort of uh, in memory message passing and all that early on is probably a really good place to start. And you can always scale out later if you need to. So now Petterbridge, I'm guessing, is a company that you've, you've created around Akka.net and also some of these other tools that have come out, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. It's we got Aka.nets. Um the other one that I'm starting to talk about a lot more is Nbench. That's our performance testing framework for Aka.net or for .net blah in general. Uh, we also are going to talk a little bit about some of the socket programming work we've done with Helios and .NETI, which is uh, those are both attempts at porting the .NETI uh, socket framework from Java to .NET. So .NETI was started by the Windows Azure group, and Helios was the original socket server I wrote uh, years ago for powering Aka.remote. Right. And so a lot of these things are um, coming from Java or like the JVM world, right? And you're kind of bringing some of these ideas and some of these... Um these techniques over to, to the .NET space. And kind of what you were saying before, I find it a little interesting that .NET is lacking or has been lacking some of these tools. Um, you know, I would say this. .NET's innovation has just been in different places than the JVM. Uh, the JVM, for a variety of reasons that probably aren't um, aren't something we could cover quickly, yeah. uh, has become a place that, that's where all the big data technology sort of lives overwhelmingly, is on the JVM. And so they had to build infrastructure to go and support that. That includes things like actor systems, socket libraries, uh, really uh, good encoding and serialization techniques, you name it. And .NET space, a lot of our innovation has been around more user-facing things. Like I would you know, say that MVVM was invented in the .NET space. Um, I would talk about event sourcing and CQRS all came from .NET. That's all, you know, Greg Young's invention primarily. Um, I would say that's true for things like SignalR, which I think is probably the best in breed WebSockets library out there now. There's been a lot of really tremendous innovation around that stuff on the .NET side. But there's some there's some original tech starting to come out now in dot and uh, .NET that I think is really impressive. The F# Sharp community has definitely been out there leading the way on a lot of the concurrency and distributed systems development stuff. I think I've been seeing some of the work they're doing there. And they don't get as much adoption and recognition just cuz you have to be kind of be a at a certain place in your career, I think, to really get your you know get your sink your teeth into something like F# Sharp. So I think it's kind of an inherently smaller community than the C-sharp one is. But still, they're working on some innovative stuff. And Nbench is a totally you know, original uh, .NET invention, the idea of sort of combining uh, benchmarking with unit testing is sort of what mm. it does. Nice. Uh, although there's there's been implementations of that elsewhere too, but it's not a port, in other words. Right. Um, and I think that there's... I think what the .NET ecosystem has been missing, I wouldn't say it's created like it's. It's not that we didn't have good developers; it's that we had a culture that was fundamentally opposed to open source in a lot of respects. Uh, a lot of this great technology that was invented uh, is sealed away in proprietary source, running behind the firewall somewhere. You know? Right. Yeah, somebody has has it somewhere, but you know, we just we just needed to create something for the community kind of thing. Yeah, and I, I think I think Microsoft's changes lately, where they've really been driving towards being more open themselves and using more open source in some capacities, I think has really helped uh, just sort of get the tide get the tide going back out again, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um. So I think there's a lot of positive signs that I feel encouraged about with the state of the art of .NET going forward, and I think that. With .NET Core, when that finally releases, and .NET developers are able to do their work fully decoupled from Windows, if they so choose, that'll completely alter the the landscape for us. We'd like to thank Aaron for being a guest on the show. It was great to have the opportunity to chat with him. If you like the show, please tell your friends and leave a comment on the website at awayfromthekeyboard.com. Also, 
remember to check us out on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash AFTK podcast and on Twitter at AFTK podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Cecil Phillip and Richie at Jars. That's J-O-R-R-I-S-S. You can subscribe to the show via the website on SoundCloud or on iTunes. And if you really want to know what makes us tick, sign up to our newsletters where you'll get extra episodes and behind-the-scenes access to a wave from the keyboard. Next on Away From The Keyboard, we'll have CEO and co-founder of CareerScore, Newt Porter. Sounds like a good one. See you next time. Bye-bye. to thank you for listening to Away From The Keyboard. As a reminder, we will have new episodes each and every week. You can interact with us on Twitter at AFTK Podcast or at awayfromthekeyboard.com. Hasta luego! I've got like three boxes of those Wizards of the Coast Star Wars card games, which completely got destroyed when they released all the prequels, you know? Oh. And it's just like, dude, Jar Jar Binks okay. strikes again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, okay. I, I know what you were talking about. That was the one after the Star Wars CCG, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. After they redid uh, Star Wars with all the other computer graphics and everything, uh, they had the Wizards of the Coast game come out, which I have to admit, way too complicated for us kids like i was 11 years old i think a bunch of my uh, friends in my neighborhood played it together i remember we were trying to figure out how to make the death star run mechanic in that game work and the math on it was actually like really complicated you know i'd have trouble expressing that stuff in code today um so but anyway it was still cool i had a darth vader car which was like the rarest one um and uh yeah that was all the all the different things I invested money into as a kid that are worthless today. We can also add pogs to that list. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I played the Star Wars game in college. We played a lot of that actually. That's probably about the right age for that game, you know. Yeah, yeah. Elementary yeah, school, it, not so much. It still holds up to this day too. That that there was. It just got a little weird when you had like a, a Tie Fighter up against a guy with a blaster. You know, it just it yeah make any sense. But, and and, and um, the worst part was there was actually a pretty decent shot. Like, yeah, the blaster would win. Like, it wasn't a sure yeah. thing, you know? That's right. And then you had, you had the attrition on top of that. It's like, okay, you won, but my guy's still dead. You know? It's like, <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah, the whole attrition thing. That was the mechanic. Yeah, just now that you mentioned it, that was the one that I thought was super complicated. Um, 
Yeah, man, I haven't played that in forever. I, I still have all yeah, that, that stuff stashed in my parents' place, I think. 